Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Andrew Harrison and of course the massive story, the one that has the entire country gripped, is Liverpool battering Manchester United 7-0 yesterday Sunday. It was Liverpool's biggest victory ever over Manchester United. Bigger even than the 7-1 win over Newton Heath in 1895. The country is talking of little else. But there are one or two other things we need to talk about. And Hannah Fern of the iPaper is here to help me out. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. So let, let's start with the big questions. Is Cody Gakpo set to be an even bigger Liverpool legend than Sadio Mane? Well, I went to watch Crew Alexandra versus Sutton Town at the weekend. So if you'd like to talk about that, I've got Fantastic. a lot to say about <laughs> Everyone's a winner. <laughs> well, what, yeah, what... I mean, literally it was a one-all draw. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's real football. So, so first up... We don't really want to be talking about him, but Boris Johnson has managed again to insert himself on the front pages with the Times story that his resignation honours include a knighthood for his father, Stanley Johnson. This has provoked anger given Stanley Johnson's sexism, his alleged groping of Caroline Noakes MP, the uncontested story about how he punched Boris Johnson's mother in the face and broke her nose, and the fact that his contributions to public life seem to be nil. Hannah, the former Prime Minister is said to have submitted a list of 100 names, far larger than the usual resignation honours. What, what does all this mean? Who's surprised about that? <laughs> of course, he's got a long list of hangers-on and, God knows, probably creditors that he needs to um, placate. But this is the sign of, God, he's just the ultimate Nepo baby, isn't he? This is yeah. shocking. It's like Nepo oh. in reverse. <laughs> exactly. I, it's it's phenomenal, really, and actually really, really shocking. And, you know, I was expecting us to chat today about whether this is a kind of make or break week for Johnson. But sorry, this kind of search self-serving nepotistic nonsense is the kind of thing that makes us all feel, sorry, that's it, we're done with you. And I think even within his party, even among his, you know, until now supporters, there are people who are going to be flabbergasted that he's gone for this. It really, it's the kind of thing that really switches off the public. So that's it, I think, in my view. Well, obviously, I mean, the list was submitted some months ago, but it arose just in t at a time when Johnson wants to irritate Rishi Sunak to the mm. maximum possible. Uh, he hasn't yet said he'll support the Northern Ireland deal. Uh, support for Johnson himself is described as ebbing away. I mean, it, 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 you know, it, it, this kind of ridiculous thing lands just at a moment when any any uh, spotlight for Johnson is going to work for Johnson. Do you think it is a make or break week? Do you think he's, the, the, I mean, because his, his audience loves this kind of stuff. Well, I actually personally don't think it ever really was. I think that the, this kind of debate around him, he's such a kind of divisive and frankly still charismatic figure that it makes great discussion but I don't, I don't think the country was ever going to recover from what we went through with Partygate and so on so I, I don't think it really is a make or break week but of course the party's interested in where he's going to stand on the Windsor framework I think that matters internally also I think the revelations from the WhatsApp leaks by Isabel Oakshot and the Telegraph do show us again his sort of charismatic character if you look at the kind of utter idiocy of his cabinet that was laid bare in those leaks and even uh, some of the kind of confusion among the advisory team some of his questioning let's be honest did look more relatable more human that we're in this era when nobody knew what was going on he was he was asking questions that I think kind of a lot of us were asking inside our own homes and that was relatable but I think that you know you contrast that against this these kind of things like nominating his own father for a knighthood for what exactly as well his father doesn't have this great record of public service in any way um, and and has a cloud over him around allegations around sexual misconduct so I mean what a ridiculous thing to do so 
obviously going to cause a backlash that if he ever wanted this kind of moment back in the in the limelight then then he, he should have known that this would be its undoing there may be a hidden kind of silver lining for rishi sunak here though because uh, the yay or nay on the resignation list does rest ultimately with sunak yeah so there's a possibility here for a kind of corbyn moment where sunak sort of slaps him down yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and certainly it's another moment where Sunak looks sensible and sort of, you know, leaderly uh, in, a, in a way that uh, Johnson never did. So, I mean, that's, in, that's to his credit, uh, despite his many um, failings and weaknesses as a leader himself. It's also the week when the government is trying to continue its relaunch with the Small Boats Initiative. Under the new legislation, people who arrive by small boat will be removed to Rwanda or a, quotes safe third country banned from future re-entry to the UK, and they'll be unable to apply for British citizenship ever. Hannah, is, is this workable? The Refugee Council says thousands of people are going to be left in permanently in limbo. No, I don't think it's workable. If you look at some of the figures, so for a start, I don't think it's going to actually slow down, as is intended, this illegal migration trade by making the route unattractive. No attempt previously, and they've made about a thousand attempts in different ways to do this so far, have ever been in any way successful. Why Why would this be successful? There's, there's no evidence to suggest it would. Worse than that, it would, as you say, leave people in limbo. And um, we've currently got more than 160,000 people in the UK waiting for an asylum decision. And of course, remember many of those with no recourse to public funds, which is a travesty in its own right. What are we going to do? Are, are we really going to actually start deporting the thousands of people who are arriving every year. Last year, 45,000 people arrived on small boats, up from 28,000 the previous year. So we don't have the kind of apparatus in place to deport at that speed. And to ban all of these people from ever making a claim, many of whom have very, very strong claim to asylum, we're losing our reputation as, you know, a moral country uh, by the second. You start with Johnson and his... um, you know, his absolutely disgusting uh, careerist attitudes towards um, cronyism. And now we're on to this. Everything we're doing on the world stage is an embarrassment at the moment and has absolutely no moral basis. And yeah, I don't think this is workable. What about the domestic uh, politics uh, strategy angle, though? I mean, it seems absolutely designed to placate the headbangers, speak to the nationalist vote, shut up the mail. Uh, you know, here's a, here's a spoonful of hard right politics after the collaborative Northern Ireland Rishi deal. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, it is exactly what they want, isn't it? It does speak to that that audience um, to p- to placate that part of the party. There was an interesting piece in the Critic this week arguing that conservatism has, has basically been missing for the last thirteen years, and it's speaking to those people, those that feel that they've never got a handle on the issues that they really ought to have done after so long in government. But of course, if these measures, it's all well and good to announce these measures, if they're not effective and very quickly, you know, before the next general election, we will be able to discover whether such a measure like this is effective or not, simply by how quickly you can deport. It essentially, you know, it could go the opposite way. It could um, speak to these people and then disappoint them very quickly and drive them into, you know, the hands of you know, other forces and further to the right, which is troubling in, in itself. Well, The Guardian quotes a former minister saying it's pure general election tactics. The quote was, propose a hardline law, have it stopped by the EU and the courts, blame lefty lawyers and Labour for being soft on immigration. So, you know, even at that level, it's just, it, the, the cynicism when you're dealing with desperate people is quite breathtaking. 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think it underestimates the amount of compassion that there is uh, among ordinary people for those who do have a fair claim to asylum. The problem is the press has poorly reported the situation of those arriving in small boats. Um, so most people don't understand that the majority actually do have some claim, which is why we have so many people awaiting a result. That they're not they're not obvious no cases that we're you know that we're dealing with here. Braverman famously could not name a safe and legal route to the UK for asylum seekers. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, use the self the safe and legal route. By the way, there isn't one. The safe the safe and legal route is having enough money to get a flight, which rather misses the point, doesn't it? Yeah. Also part of the government relaunch uh, on the horizon is the budget coming on March the 15th, the week after next. I mean, the BBC saying uh, Jeremy Hunt will keep the energy price guaranteed to April. The iPaper says he's going to refuse to cut corporation tax, which will, of course, set up a row with the Tory right and whatever's left of Liz Truss's people. Do we know anything about what's in it yet? There are some hints, um, but nothing much concrete other than that that you've you've mentioned. So there's this kind of first indication that they're trying to get on an election footing after the Trust Quarteng disaster and kind of pave out some kind of road to lower taxes. So probably not any kind of tax reduction right now, but hinting at some plan for it over a period of years. Then there's this previous discussion about the incre increase in um, state pension age, which is very controversial, but I think that's quite likely. There's a row ongoing over military cuts. There's a predicted or planned, sorry, I should say, 4% uh, reduction in troop numbers. Um, but now there's this big debate about whether that should be dropped because of the situation in Ukraine and you know allied European instability in that part of Europe that, that, that it causes. So those are all kind of difficult issues for the Tory party, alongside the already the argument that Preeti Patel and Jeremy Hunt have had publicly about whether or not um, the planned corporation tax rise to 25% in April, which comes in in April, should go ahead. Patel has been very vocal about saying that she thinks Hunt needs to drop that in mid-March. I don't think that's very likely, actually, because this is a kind of quite popular tax rise uh, among the centre, which is part of, um, you know, the demographic that the Tory party really needs to hang on to um, in the next few weeks and months. Um, but the Moon Music says that there could be something on childcare support too, and that would be huge if there was, because there's such a kind of public appetite for that, that it could leave Labour on the back foot, I think, if they go for something really spectacular and headline-grabbing there. You mentioned it earlier, the Matt Hancock, Isabel Oakeshott WhatsApp messages story rumbles on in the Telegraph. Today's uh, edition or today's uh, droplet of that story is that Hancock blocked replacing 14 days of isolation during COVID uh, with five days of tests because a new system would imply that we got it wrong. Uh, over the weekend, we learned that uh, his key concern was being able to frighten the public sufficiently. What are we learning from this that's, that's new, Hannah, and is it cutting through to Joe Public? I think it is cutting through because we all remember each of these eras of the of the pandemic and they're all quite kind of defining personally. We all went through this in, in a really kind of personal, emotional way. So going back over it, raking over it, it stays with us because of our own memories. But I think the interesting one about this particular policy around changing the isolation rules for those who are close contacts is an interesting one. What's revealed here is that the, the government was so 
anxious about looking like they got it wrong, that they didn't follow the science. And if you remember, this was around the time when we had that term, the pandemic. So, you know, the economy was significantly affected by the rules at that time because so many people were being pinged by the app to say they'd been in close contact. So if, and it is a big if, the five-day testing regime was safe at that point and the, the text messages don't actually go so far as, re, as to reveal that, actually, that that could have been safely rolled out. It was just a discussion. But if... That was a huge economic hit for nothing, just, well, just for the politics of it. And I think that is the kind of thing that does stay with people. And it also demonstrates the real weakness of government in that they weren't willing to be honest at this point with the people. They were they were running scared of us, possibly because of some of the, you know, places like the Telegraph, frankly, and the kind of anti-lockdown messaging that was out there. But people actually aren't that stupid. You know, I'm willing to be quite optimistic about ordinary people we were in this unknown situation together and once the government is steering them by their own design not guiding them through the evidence kind of together hand in hand then they've overreached and and that's a bad look and there is a kind of long arm to that I think as well which is the debacle around the 15 minute cities if you make a mistake like that if you're not honest uh, at every point in such a confusing, complex and constantly evolving situation, then you end up with all these conspiracy theory nut jobs coming out of the woodwork and taking over perfectly ordinary policies like the 15 minute city planning, town planning, for goodness sake, how that became a conspiracy theory, I've no idea. But this is the problem. That's what happens. So, yeah, I think it was a mistake. So I think this is one that people will remember, actually. The Telegraph has been trying very hard to retrospectively brand all lockdowns as a terrible error. And uh, Isabel Oakeshott in particular has been really sort of pushing the emotional angle of it, um, both in all of her media interviews and on the front of the Telegraph. Is it actually persuading people of that point of view that lockdown in general was a bad idea? Or is it just reminding everybody of what an incompetent shower of, of, of fifth raters the cabinet are? It's definitely reminding us of the latter. <laughs> Some of the texts are hilarious it's worth reading through them just for a bit of a laugh it is cutting through in that people are following this but i don't actually think it's converting anyone to the oak shot telegraph position around lockdowns what i think it's doing is entrenching positions so yes there are people who are now using this information to kind of back up their view already that lockdown was a really awful thing that didn't work for anybody psychologically economically uh you know scientifically in terms of the spread of the virus. But also, I've noticed on various um, social media, Facebook and things like Mumsnet and so on, threads about people now talking about the dangers of minimising COVID. So I think actually people who were already fairly confident that, you know, we did the right thing and that was the only thing we could have done at that time still strongly believe that and would still strongly support another lockdown should we face another similarly critical you know, pandemic or health health issue. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's actually changing positions, but, but um, entrenching them further. I think my favourite bit was in the leaks, the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case calls Johnson a nationally distrusted figure. And that's <laughs> yeah. before Partygate, before anybody knew about Partygate. Absolutely. And yeah. the most, it's ironic that the most pro-Johnson paper in the country is leading on country distrusts Johnson and won't follow his rules. Now you tell us. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Labour news, Sue Gray is going to tell the government appointments watchdog when exactly she began talking to Keir Starmer about becoming his chief of staff. The Johnson rearguard have tried to use this to discredit Gray's damning report on Partygate. Um, is it working? Well, 
It's certainly raising questions that people are sort of wanting the answer to and they're going to listen to this play out. But I don't think there's anything in it at all. As you said, she's going to have to declare when discussions with Labour commence, as is right and proper. And given her history, I mean, I don't know her personally, I've never met her and I don't know any of her close contacts or aides. But from what I've read about her distinguished career in the civil service, I strongly imagine that everything's going to come out absolutely proper here that she will have followed every single rule and so unless something unexpected emerges from this uh, little bit of protocol then you know it's all going to disappear I also think it's really interesting there was a a point made by a a former Tory spad named Lauren Makovit and she was speaking uh, on um, broadcast media over the weekend about her response to this And her strong view was that people should be much less surprised by this, people particularly within her own party, that someone who is essentially neutral and has dedicated their career to the civil service and dedicated the last 13 years of her life to supporting, you know, on neutrally via the civil service, a conservative government is now so appalled, essentially, by what she sees that she's driven to in uh, Makovic's words, make the opposition look electable and that the Tories should have essentially seen this coming. So I think it's it's interesting that there are even people within the Conservative side who think this is a sensible move for both Starmer and, frankly, for Sue Gray. In inquiry news, we've got Boris Johnson going before the Privileges Committee two weeks today. The Johnson fan base have tried to discredit that as well. And we've also got the Dominic Robb bullying investigation, which is entering its final stages. Rob says he will resign as Deputy Prime Minister if he's found to have bullied civil servants. Is this just adding to a general sense of decay? Well, inquiry after inquiry isn't a good look, is it, for a start? But, you know, Rob, I think, is the kind of the high point. Because if you look at some of the testimony coming out of it, I mean, none of them can speak on the record until after it's published. But um, the BBC has had a chat to various people who worked for Raab. And some of the things um, that they say demonstrate that we can expect this final report, whatever it concludes, to be quite explosive. So things like he would frequently, quote, one direct quote is, he would frequently humiliate members of his private office or others that were working with him. Another quote said, at a flick of a switch, he could turn incredibly angry and pretty offensive in the way he talked to people. I mean, this is, in my view, akin to bullying behaviour. Um, and it, as, as you say, he has already declared that he will resign should the this independent um, inquiry conclude that he is a bully. And I mean, that's that's a very significant moment for Sunak if he has to lose his deputy in such an embarrassing uh, way. So, well, we all look forward to seeing what it concludes. Meanwhile, in the outside world, uh, the ambulance strikes are off as pay talks are beginning. Firefighters have already postponed their strikes after they got an offer of 7%, backdated to July 2022. Are we starting to see cracks in the government's stance on the strikes? I think they are starting to soften. I mean, on this podcast, I've said a series of times that the government will have to. They have no choice because the unions are, you know, have much more support than um, the government, I think, appreciated early on 
in what we might call the kind of new winter or spring of discontent or whatever. Two more teacher strikes are coming next week, same week as the budget, obviously. So there'll be, you know, all eyes on that. It's a very political week where ordinary folks who aren't, you know, listening to podcasts like ours and reading every single newspaper will pay attention to what's happening. So Sunak will want to avoid it being all about pay and strikes and and want to instead get attention for his measures. So, yes, I do think there's deals coming. um, And whether or not we can avoid some of those that are just around the corner, uh, you know, let's see. But let's let's hope so, because they all deserve a, a good settlement, too. In Ukraine, it seems that Russia is about to take the eastern city of Bakhmut. Putin has been looking for a symbolic victory around the first anniversary of his invasion, and CNN's reporting that Ukraine has inflicted serious damage on Russian forces as they look for that symbolic victory. By some estimates, says CNN, it's a ratio of 7 to 1 uh, in Ukraine's favour. There comes a moment when it is smarter to withdraw than suffer growing losses, though. Exactly what's happening here? Yes, it's become a symbolic fight for both sides. Uh, as you said, Putin has been um, hoping for this to be a kind of watershed moment, taking of Bakhmut. But equally, Ukraine have been holding out in remarkable fashion and still actually today hold control of the city despite fierce street fighting. And both armies are reportedly struggling with ammunition shortages and casualties as well. So military analysts have been saying for a while that they thought Ukraine would pull out in a controlled retreat to prevent losses. And actually, there was evidence that they had started to plan such a move um, around destroying various bridges and so on, so they could you know, pull out and protect themselves in a controlled way. But actually, at the moment, it still looks like they're staying put and fighting to the bitter end. And I think that is because it has become this symbolic fight. So I think what happens there over the next week or two will tell us a lot about how the, the the next few months will play out in Ukraine. And finally today, it hardly seems to matter after what we've talked about, but the Met Office has issued a yellow warning for parts of northeast Scotland and England as Arctic air is going to bring snow, cold, winds and icy conditions. So that's great. We haven't had heating for three weeks in this house. <laughs> Are you looking forward to it? Uh, no, I am just always cold at the moment. I can't, can't, can't cope with it anymore. What just reminded me, thinking about um, this time of year and what it's normally like, it reminded me that we're in, we're in March now. And three years ago, thinking about the earliest days of the pandemic while raking through these oak shot um, revelations, do you remember how hot it was in the first two weeks of April? It was yeah. absolutely scorching. And now we're freezing cold. And I know this is a completely pat point, and I am not a scientist in any way. But, you know, this is climate change writ large, isn't it? We're all over the place. One minute it's freezing, the next minute it's boiling, and nobody knows what time of year it is anymore. And we all want to put the heating on. <laughs> is that your cat? That's my cat saying, put the heating on. I think that's a good <laughs> cue to uh, to end the podcast there. The most British way to end a podcast in history. That's start your week. Thank you for getting up early, Hannah Fern. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. Do remember your support on Patreon is the bedrock of what we do here. So if you want to get the ed- episodes early and ad-free and you want to help us keep going and you even want to help us to fix the heating, then search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We're hugely grateful to our Patreon backers and here's some thanks to the latest ones from Hannah. See you tomorrow. Hello and many thanks to Alex Sloan, Mark Ellens, Eden Corey and Rory Hipkin. Stop. 
Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Fern. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. And the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.